Blog Talk Radio. Hello, Eastern family and friends. Welcome to Memories of a Great Airline, as told by the people of Eastern Airlines. Kind of a long title, but it says what the show will be about. Stories about the people and friends of Eastern over the history of the airline. Your storytellers will read stories found in several Eastern publications, such as the Repartee Magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, The Wings of Man, The Wings of Many, the Silverliners Magazine for the Flight Attendants, News Wings, which started it all with Pitcairn Aviation, and many more. Stories that tell the history of the many departments of an airline, Men and women performing their duties that made Eastern Airlines the great airline it was. Pilots of the early history of the airline that were asked to fly their open cockpit biplanes into the night skies, into good weather and bad weather, fog, rain, and snow, with the most crude instruments compared with today's high-tech cockpits. Roads, railroad tracks, and the early radio ranges filled with static were their only means of navigation. Landing at night with only the glow of flare pot pots put out earlier by ground personnel was a challenge that modern-day airmen cannot fathom with their full automatic landing systems. We owe much to these heroes of aviation progress, Maintenance performed by the early mechanics dealt with fabric airplanes, need to be patched and engines with the complexity of the internal combustion engines, needing constant repairs day or night, broken down in pastures like fields of grass and weeds. No matter what the weather, the mechanics under the direction of Mr. Johnny Ray always came through to keep the airline in the air. Hostesses were hired once passenger airplanes came about, like the Curtis Condor and the Kingbirds. They were introduced to the traveling public. Uh, 
from the early hostesses, as they were originally called, to the stewardesses in the 50s and 60s, to our present flight attendants on the jumbo jets carrying several hundreds of passengers in a single airplane. These professionals are the first responders when an aircraft has an emergency and to protect their passengers. That could even cost them their lives. From just showing up at the airfield to catch a flight to their destination, to the marvels of the modern-day reservation system, which Eastern Airlines pioneered in its early development, that allows for even booking your flight and seat from the comfort of your own home today. You've got to sell seats to stay in business, in the words of our beloved president. There has to be an ass in every seat, the airline excelled in sales and marketing. These men and women gave the airline prestigious businesses, business such as the official airline of Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. The airline of so many firsts, it would be hard to list here, just to mention a few. Uh, the first Boeing 727 flown by Eastern, the first wide-bodied aircraft, the L-1011, the first air shuttle, the first Boeing 757, and many, many more. And finally, the stars of the show, the Eastern aircraft, from the Pitcairn Mail Wing aircraft to the jumbo jets, like the Lockheed L-1011, the Airbus A300, the McDonnell Douglas DC-10, the Boeing 747 to the all-glass cockpit of the Boeing 757. I could go on with why this airline, Eastern Airlines, became a legend in its time. However, we think the radio broadcast that you'll be hearing will more than tell the story, so we invite you to sit back and enjoy the memories of a great airline as told by the people of Eastern Airlines. Harry Lindquist and Captain Neil Holland will be joined by others as we introduce episodes each week. We hope you will join us on these Monday evenings at 8 p.m. East Coast time by going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. That's Captain Eddie. C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. blogtalkradio.com forward slash C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. And now for our first story. This next story is a short story from uh, the Repartee magazine. Do you ever wonder what those guys in the cockpit are doing prior to takeoff? We we know they're figuring uh, gross weights and fuel loads and uh, wind and weather and V1 and V2. But sometimes they're also concerned with some more mundane things, like uh, what are we going to have for dinner this evening? This story is entitled Steak or Chicken, a true short story. Names are withheld to protect the guilty. As dusk fell on the old Atlanta terminal, known for its turquoise and orange accent panels and modern design supplanting the old, old hangar building located in the northwest Atlanta of KATL, the Eastern DC-9 front-end crew had just settled down for a crew meal prior to departure from an outlying gate serviced by a motorized jetway. It was dark outside when the senior asked who would have what. The boss chose steak and the coke pilot was relieved to have the chicken since after several years of exposure had etched a rude neural pathway into his reptilian brain. The overhead lights were doused and the trays were brought to sit kingly on our laps with map lights to guide our knives and forks. Also, the cockpit door was pulled closed but not locked since passengers were beginning to board for the flight to who knows where. Silence dominated the ingestion for several minutes until quite suddenly a tinkle and clatter erupted from the left seat and the right seater thought he saw a tray flying up into the glare shield while dishes and implements flew in all directions. The first officer was, was concerned and both parties immediately responded to emergency first aid training gratefully received some unknown time ago during recurrent training. 
Without a word, both attempted to stand up in the limited space between their seats and position themselves in a way that the boss would be facing forward with the F.O. directly behind him to initiate the revered Heimlich maneuver. All was going well, despite considerable jostling to achieve the necessary fist of the second party and the first party's lower sternum to facilitate a vigorous expelling of the offending chaw of rubberized gristle masquerading as steak. At the very moment of expiration and expelling following the third vigorous gut punch, both parties lost their combined balance, falling backwards against the cockpit door, which immediately sprung open, allowing the passengers to skitter away from the two large crewmen who were obviously in fierce disagreement over some unknown issue and fell to the boarding area floor as the captain belched forth a gray blob and sung out, I'm saved, I'm okay now. With that, the senior was seen to roll her eyes and say something to the effect that boys will be boys, and the passengers again attempted to find their way into the airplane amid the pilots finding their way back into the dark of the wizard room they had just successfully evacuated from. Shortly, the captain explained via the PA system that training and quick thinking had saved the day, and his bacon, and all was peaceful up front with the seat belt, no smoking signs on, and a thank you for flying eastern. Uh, this was submitted by Big John Schur, who was the first officer. Hey, funny face. Hi. Guess what? I'm going out of town tomorrow to the sales conference. Out of town? Can't they send somebody else? No, honey. It's my big idea about the conveyor. Well, can't you send them a letter? Uh-uh. Or a phone call? Smoke signals? No, honey. It's my idea about the conveyor, and I've got to be there to present it in person. It's a big opportunity. I know. I'm very happy. Got your tickets? Eastern Airlines. When will you be back? Same day, tomorrow night. Oh, you mean you'll be home tomorrow. Yeah, Eastern has a schedule where you go in the morning, come back in the evening. Oh, honey, they're just going to love your idea about the conveyor. I love you. <laughs> Eastern Airlines has same-day return schedules to many cities, including Chicago and Atlanta. Eastern will fly you to your business meeting in the morning, then bring you home for a goodnight kiss. Wherever you want to go, call Eastern and ask. Getting home is half the fun. Come fly with Eastern. Have you ever come out of a store or a uh, shopping center or anywhere and tried to get in the wrong car? Or maybe you did get in and then you realize, I'm in the wrong car. Well, you know, that can happen with airplane pilots too. This is one such story entitled, Where You Been?, by Bud McVeigh. It was an early morning departure out of DFW, and I was chatting with a friend at the crew desk when up walks the first officer and introduces himself. I had never met this fellow before, but I could tell he was a sharp co-pilot as he had already pulled up our flight plan and was pointing to the spot where I was to sign. I sign, and he stuffs all the paperwork into his pocket and turns to leave, saying he would meet me at the plane after he stopped off at the John. Wait, I said, what gate are we on and what's the tail number? I make note of his reply as he hurries off. I leave operations while it is still dark and head out to the plane via the ramp, being alert to the speeding baggage carts passing on all sides. Hauling a three-day suitcase and a 30-pound kit bag can exhaust an old guy, so I'm glad to see the Super 80 at the gate just ahead. I use the jet bridge stairway, which takes me up to the plane's forward entry. As I go on board, I get a whiff of skunk roadkill, which is a sure sign the flight attendants are brewing coffee. What a sharp crew! I glance down the aisle and see the girls busy stowing stuff and doing whatever they do to prepare for departure. None of them look familiar. I had not met any of them in flight ops, but this is not unusual. I enter the cockpit, heave the kit bag across the seat, take off my hat and coat, loosen my tie, and then settle into my chair. I prepare for departure by tuning in WBAP on the radio and reclining the seat back. I'm listening to a comedy episode of John Wayne in the rootin' tootin' town of Dodge City when a flight attendant sticks her head in the door. Then in a surprised voice says, Why, you're not our captain. Have you displaced our cabin? No, I haven't, I replied. Where are you based? San Diego. And we're supposed to go to Little Rock, she says. Well, this plane is bound for Chicago, I announced. With that, she whirls around, and I hear quite a bit of commotion and chattering coming from the cabin. Shortly thereafter, I hear them all exit the plane without a word of goodbye. 
I listened to the sound of their grumbling and the squeaking of eight little luggage wheels fade up the jet bridge. As I relax, I wonder where our cabin crew is. Oh well, here comes the co-pilot. He has taken the same route to the plane as I did. Good gosh, he's pulling one of those suitcases the flight attendants use and he has his kit bag strapped to the top of it. Those long-haired long sissy-pants pilots on the west coast started that practice. Are these guys too weak to carry their own gear? I watch as he appears to be walking past the plane. I flash the taxi light at him several times to get his attention. He looks up. I wave. He waves back and keeps right on walking. About this time, I hear a maintenance man plug into the intercom and ask what I wanted. I advise him that I was just testing the taxi lights, so he leaves. I had best get busy, as it looks like I may have to fly this thing by myself. A good start is to check the logbook. Being a thorough pilot, I checked the aircraft number on the logbook against the number I'd inked into the back of my hand. A carryover from my Air Force days. Dang, maintenance put the wrong logbook on this plane. Suddenly a chill goes up my spine as I check the aircraft number placard on the instrument panel. I'm in the wrong plane. Let me grab my stuff and get the hell out of here. I hear heavy footsteps thundering down the jet bridge, accompanied by much talk and the squeak of 12 little suitcase wheels. It's too late. I'm trapped in the cockpit. So, this plane is bound for Chicago, is it? The San Diego captain booms at me. Each flight attendant pauses long enough at the cockpit door to glare in and mutter something under her breath. Well, maybe not, I say. Anyway, i got the cockpit all set up for you. I squeeze by them and I make my escape. I double check that I am truly at the right gate and aircraft this time and walk on board to the smell of skunk roadkill. The girls are all smiles and seem glad to see me. I enter the cockpit, and the co-pilot asks, Where you been? Oh, just talking with the San Diego crew. Anything in their logbook? next story is about an eastern cargo flight that could have ended with a boom, but fortunately it landed safely and all was well. The story is entitled 16 Tons by Eastern Captain Jim Blackburn. Jim writes, a few months ago I was saddened to learn of the death of Captain Jack Tack, who passed away on February the 24th, 2006. Jack was 87 years old and lived a long and full life. He had a great sense of humor and be, will be really missed. The obituary notice brought to mind the last and most interesting trip that Jack and I had flown together. The date was the 3rd of June in 1962 when I got a call from Miami Cruiscad. The jovial scheduler said I had lucked out and gotten a trip the next day to San Juan. Previously, I had put in a Type 2 bid for any trip to San Juan, but being rather junior, thought that the odds of my actually getting one were very slim. At the time, I was mostly flying FO on the DC-7B. When I asked for the vital details on the flight, the scheduler told me that it was a charter and the captain was Jack Tack. He then added that the equipment type was the Constellation L1049-C. Sadly, I confess that I had not flown the Connie in over six months and was out of date on the CAB requirements of three landings within 90 days. The scheduler said that it didn't matter because this was a cargo charter flight and the 90-day rule was waived. Then I just had to ask, what's the cargo? And got the stimulating answer, 16 tons of high explosives. 
it seems that there was a big load of commercial dynamite that had to go get to San Juan before the legal date of transport expired. Shipment by air was the quickest way. At this time, Eastern had one cargo Connie L1049-C, ship number 255, that was used primarily to ferry replacement engines to any of our grounded aircraft that needed them, but it was also available for charter. It was still dark when I met Captain Jack Tack at operations on the morning of June 4, 1962. The ops guys were kidding him about drawing the short straw to get this trip, but he didn't let them get the best of him. When filling out our flight papers, I asked Jack about the correct spelling of his last name, saying that it looked like a typographical error to me. He said he was just one big typo. With this sense of humor, I knew we'd have a good time on our hazardous duty flight. Our flight engineer, Troy Blackford, had already gone out to pre-flight the airplane. We were given a local rule book from Dade County Port Authority on air transport of high explosives. A few of the rules that I can remember were, no smoking allowed with high explosives aboard. Uh, this must have been Eastern's first no smoking flight. We would be followed, not too closely, by fire rescue trucks while taxiing on the airport. We had to take off west, no matter which way the wind was blowing. At that time, there wasn't much population just west of Miami. We would get special flight f following and have fire rescue trucks standing by for arrival in San Juan. When all the paperwork was filed, we asked where our airplane was parked. They said that it was being loaded in an isolated area in the middle of the airport. We got crew transport out to the plane and stood out back while we watched workers unload a big tractor trailer. They were casually tossing boxes of dynamite on a belt loader that took them up through the aft cargo door and were stacking them on pallets inside the plane. Jack asked them a critical question. Just was it what this what does it take to set off one of those boxes? One worker said about a thirty foot free fall. Jack said, Gee, that's my normal landing. They all laughed, but our laughter was a bit more subdued than theirs. It took us exactly four hours and eleven minutes to fly to San Juan that day. We were given a remote location, parking spot, and followed again not too closely by fire rescue. Couldn't help but think of the Tennessee Ernie Ford song, 16 Tons. The lyrics went something like, You load 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older. That day it looked like we would get another day older since we had made the successful delivery of our 16 tons. Ryan, look! There's a new kind of plane! That's Eastern's new Boeing 727 jet! Look how high the tail is, 34 feet. Look where they put the jets. In the tail assembly. That's one reason it's so quiet. The passengers are always riding ahead of the sound. Where does it fly to? I don't know. It flies north. You can hightail it on Eastern's new 727 jetliner to Washington, Philadelphia, and Boston. And a unique new dining service is worth riding home about. Choose from a selection of superb entrees like lobster Newburgh, filet mignon with Bordelais sauce, prepared as you like it. Eastern 727 Jet, quiet as a library. The smartest way to leave town? Come fly with Eastern. This next story comes to us from the book The Wings of Man, it was written by Lou Palacio. Lou was with Eastern from 1959 to 1991. His first position was sales executive, and he later served as interline sales manager, director of sales Latin America, director of interline and government affairs, and director international marketing. After Eastern shut down, he worked for Iberia Airlines of Spain until 1994 as vice president, business development. Between 94 and 201, he was Vice President, Sales and Service, Latin American Division for World Airways. The title of the article is Eastern's New Frontier, Starting Service in Latin America. My love affair with Eastern Airlines has many chapters. However, the one that I'm relating to you today had a strong relevance in the history of what once was a proud member of our country's thriving airline industry. On an afternoon in April 1982, after I landed at Miami International Airport on a Pan American flight from Paris, 
I was met at the airport by Jim Courtney, an Eastern Special Customer Services representative, who told me that I was summoned to report to our executive office for an important meeting next morning with George Lyall, my divisional vice president. The next day, having to cut my vacation time short, I reported to Building 16, named the Ivory Tower, to join a number of key employees from other divisions. Mr. Lyle told us that Colonel Frank Borman, our president and CEO, had called him the day before to inform him that Eastern had acquired the Latin American routes that were formerly served by Braniff International Airways, and that Lyle was to put together an employee task group to bring about the merger of the Braniff routes and employees in Latin America into the Eastern fold. The task group included every phase of the airline operation properties and facilities, flight ops, legal, marketing and sales, accounting and finance, catering, human resources, flight attendants, maintenance and ground support, advertising, corporate presentations, and many others. My assignment was to become the general coordinator of the marketing and sales function, reporting directly to George Lyle. Until that day, I had worked as the manager of interline sales at the Miami District Sales Office, a job I adored, and now all of a sudden I was being launched into the big time as a resident of the Ivory Tower and an uncharted assignment. Like any new and unexpected experience, I had mixed feelings as to where the new job would take me. However, as a veteran of the airline I loved, I threw myself full force into the assignment. The first big surprise came when I was asked by Dr. Wayne Yeoman, Eastern Senior Vice President Finance, to make a presentation to our lenders on the subject of what Latin America meant to the financial future of the company and that I had a week to prepare before the lenders meeting at the Sheraton River House Hotel in Miami. I had never before had to make a presentation to such an important group of people and I felt like I was being thrown in the middle of the ocean with no life jacket and had to swim among the sharks in order to survive. George Lyle was in, on an extended tour of the Brenda facilities and sales office in Latin America, hence the reason for my assignment. The night before the lenders meeting, I was asked to make a dry run to Dr. Yeoman and other finance department executives at Eastern's Auditorium in Building 16. To say that I was nervous would be to put it mildly. I had written a script based on what I was told was important to the lenders and had tried to be sophisticated in my use of language. When I finished the presentation, their faces told me it was a disaster. I thought that I would not be allowed to go through with it. Dr. Yeoman, who was always a fine and sensitive gentleman, simply came over with a resigned expression on his face, put his arm on my shoulder, and said, Well, Lou, do the best you can. The next morning, I joined Dr. Yeoman, the other Eastern Senior Vice Presidents, and Frank Borman. A few moments before my presentation, I approached Dr. Yeoman and told him that I was going to forget the suggested script and points presentation and that I would do it my way. With a forlorn look on his face, Dr. Yeoman said, Lou, do whatever you feel is right and may God help us. I will never forget the moment I was introduced to the lenders and took over the podium to begin my presentation, which I felt would prove to be my last day of employment at Eastern. Looking at Frank Borman, Dr. Ehrlich, Dr. Yeoman, Russ Ray, and the rest of Eastern senior management, I began. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, Colonel Borman and the distinguished members of Eastern Airlines Senior Management. It's not every day that I make a presentation to such an elite group. So I'll begin by warning you that if you hear a name, if you hear a fill or tremor, fear not, for it is not an earthquake. It is simply my knees and I cannot keep from shaking. That impromptu statement not only got me a laugh, but served to relax me. Then I proceeded to talk about the importance of Eastern's new service in Latin America and the positive financial impact that it would have to our company's bottom line. I told them that fares to Latin America carried substantial yields because the routes that we were starting were regulated and based on bilateral agreements with each of the countries and the United States. I talked about the variety of attractions that each country had to offer and how we were going to increase tourism to each of them from the U.S. cities on our network. Rather than reading from a piece of paper, I spoke from the heart, and when I finished with a positive statement, Latin America, Eastern Airlines' newly found gold mine, I received an unexpected standing ovation from the audience. Colonel Borman then came over to tell me that I was the first Eastern person to enjoy such an accolade from the lenders. From that day on, empowered by renewed self-confidence and resolved to meet the challenge head-on, 
I began the task of meeting and merging the former Braniff employees into the Eastern family, a job that was made easy by the high quality of the people we inherited. Many remain great friends of mine. In the years that followed the lenders meeting, I traveled to all the new countries on our network, making theater-style corporate audio-visual presentations complete with live music and a cast of Disney characters. Together with George Lyall, I was moved to the top floor of Building 16 next to Colonel Frank Borman's office and eventually became the Director of Sales for the region. Latin America became a true money-making operation for Eastern and an asset that was sold at substantial profit to American Airlines when it was evident that our days as a viable company were coming to an end. Many experiences and rewarding moments took place during my tenure at Eastern, but I also experienced one of the saddest moments of my life when I was appointed to coordinate the transfer of our Latin America assets to American Airlines. For me, the end of Eastern represented my second exile and was a heartbreaking experience. Eastern was nothing more than an outstanding group of people who at one time or another were united by a common bond of friendship, hard work, and pride of the airline that was founded by a true American legend, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. Like the other great airlines of our time, Pan Am, TWA, Braniff, and National, Eastern will always live in my heart and memory as a place where the greatest generation of airline people work for an industry that no longer exists. Since the days of the ancient Mayans, one thing hasn't changed. When Mexican people celebrate, Mexican people dance. You can vacation in Mexico this year for the same kind of money you spent last year. Call Eastern or your travel agent. It's easy to take the vacation you thought you couldn't take. We make it easier to fly. This next story comes from the book The Wings of Man, uh, written by Craig Jackson. After Craig was discharged from the 82nd Airborne Division in 1956, Craig joined Eastern Airlines in Corpus Christi, Texas. In 1966, he was promoted to Eastern Management in Miami and eventually became System Manager of Cargo Services. In 1986, he moved to Atlanta as Manager International Cargo. In 1988, became Manager Sales and Services in Daytona Beach. Uh, this article is entitled Eastern Airlines Cargo by Craig Jackson. From simple beginnings of government-awarded airmail contracts, the cargo business became a major revenue source, only requiring utilization of Eastern's aircraft resources that would have otherwise been lost. Until the delivery of large jet aircraft such as the DC-8, freight was given little consideration because it provided a very small part of Eastern's total revenue. However, with the delivery of these aircraft in the 1960s and 1970s, cargo space and weight capabilities increased dramatically. This was especially true with the L-1011, which accommodated 16 containers, each with a 3,000-pound limit. At this point, Eastern began actively marketing cargo services. The revenue associated with air freight began to increase and the old method of processing air freight using manually prepared air bills and lot labels could not keep up with the volume. In addition, manual accounting resulted in an inability to bill shipments and even follow up with collection of revenue. In 1981, Eastern decided to automate both the processing and accounting of air freight by investing $11 million in a computer system known as CargoTrack. This resulted in huge increases in revenue and improved productivity. Once implemented, this system provided automated production of airway bills, lot labels, and manifests. The initial cargo track record provided agents with the ability to trace shipments and to ensure dispatch on the first available flights. 
it was no longer necessary to manually rate shipments because the system did this with creation of the initial shipping document. The record was used for all accounting purposes. By the mid-1980s, annual cargo revenue approached $200 million. Commodities transported included flowers, live tropical fish, live lobster, all types of produce, and even prescription medications using raw materials shipped to San Juan and then manufactured for return by air to the United States and other countries. Other high revenue items requiring special handling and overnight service included live animals, human remains, and donated human organs and blood shipments. Eastern's acquisition of the South American routes from Braniff International in 1982 provided excellent passenger traffic and resulted in more opportunities for cargo. One example was transport of perishable commodities such as grapes from Santiago, Chile. These long haul routes were especially profitable. On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in cabin two just for discount travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New York. Eastern's Transcon. Probably all of us can recall some of the great Eastern commercials that ran back in the day. This story is entitled Eastern Airlines and Campbell Ewald by Pete Dow, Eastern's advertising firm. The advertising firm Campbell Ewald first held the Eastern Airlines account from 1940 to 1948. Samples from that era included the themes The Great Silver Fleet and Fly Eastern When You Go, There's No Finer Way to Travel. Campbell Ewald again won the Eastern account in 1982. Six years earlier, Campbell Ewald had brought the Chicago ad agency Clinton Frank, owned by the Yale All-American halfback and Heisman Trophy and Maxwell Award winner Clint Frank. Subsequently, Clint invited the chairman of Campbell Ewald, Tom Adams, to be his guest at a summer encampment of the Bohemian Grove in the California Redwoods. Frank Borman happened to be a guest in the same camp. Of course, the colonel was a famous astronaut, Adams was a highly decorated World War II Pacific Campaign fighter pilot, winning the Navy Cross, among others. The two became acquainted at the Grove, and the Colonel invited Tom to have Campbell Ewald come to Miami and make a credentials presentation. That visit resulted in Campbell Ewald succeeding Young and Rubicon as the Eastern Ad Agency. Campbell Ewald's initial campaign was based on the statistic. More passengers fly Eastern than any other airline in the free world. To facilitate the highly demanding retail ad requirements, Campbell Ewald opened a Miami office. Eventually, that office also handled much of the Spanish language advertising. The Eastern account was also serviced by Detroit and New York offices. Most of the broadcast work was done in New York. Detroit handled all of the communications and logistics of the frequent flyer program. Early on, Campbell Ewald put a promotion together involving two of their clients, Eastern and Chevrolet. The premise was buy a Chevrolet and get two free tickets anywhere Eastern Airlines flies. It was successful for both parties in generating incremental income. Among other initiatives, Campbell Ewald helped Eastern with where the communications opening the Kansas City hub as well as the introduction of a senior citizen passport product. When Eastern acquired the Braniff routes in South America, Russ Ray and I made several trips together. Russ to meet his old Braniff New Eastern teams there, and I to audit the current ad agency relationships. Two ads were developed for South American service. Now the Western Hemisphere is the Eastern Hemisphere, and only our name is Eastern. The second advertising theme developed by Campbell E. Walt was We Earn Our Wings Every Day. Campbell Ewald's relationship with Eastern ended when the airline was sold to Frank Lorenzo. The Campbell Ewald team that served Eastern developed a strong bond with all their Eastern counterparts. I still have an Eastern model airplane in my home office. John Nelson, who took over from Russ Ray when he went to PSA, wrote me, In my years of working with you, Dick, Joe, and others, never did I have a better experience with outsiders. 
All of you were genuine partners in our business, sharing in both successes as well as the downtimes. I always felt as if we received the benefit of your best thinking regardless of the issue at hand. It was simply a wonderful experience. It was a wonderful experience for the Campbell Ewall team as well. The airline that doesn't plan for the future may not have one. Five years ago, Eastern saw the future in a remarkable aircraft. Now it's here. The new Boeing 757, the most advanced, most fuel-efficient commercial jet ever built. It's going to help Eastern hold down the cost of flying for years to come. We earn our wings for All consumer products have an advertising slogan, some memorable, some not. Do you remember the wings of man? This is the story of Eastern's most memorable advertising campaign by Jim Camisa. No story of Eastern Airlines would be complete without mention of the carrier's memorable advertising campaign of the 1970s. It was the wings of man, and I was fortunate enough to be involved in it. The campaign was a launch to address the less than satisfactory consumer image that existed for the airline. Customer concern had not been a high priority in the 30-year Rickenbacker era, which had ended in 1963. Under the new leadership of Floyd Hall, priorities then shifted and dramatic improvements were made in upgrading the services provided to the airline's customers. In spite of the changes, Eastern consumer preference ratings still lag behind those of its major competitors. American, United, and TWA had the benefit of long-haul route systems on which passenger satisfaction and preference ratings were traditionally higher. Delta Airlines, Eastern's most direct competitor, enjoyed an aura of excellence built on the charm and hospitality associated with its southern heritage. Eastern, in contrast, was seen as an unimportant short-haul carrier and one that was cold and impersonal. The challenge before us was to find a way to use advertising to list Eastern's preference ratings, at least to the level of its competition. The Eastern Advertising Agency at the time was Young and Rubicon, a large and well-respected New York agency. Working with our advertising group, there was agreement that our problem could not be solved merely with more advertising that simply told prospective flyers where we fly what passenger service are provided, and how and why the airline cares for its customers. Much more would be needed, a very different and bold approach. Eastern was fortunate to have a top-notch creative team at its advertising agency. It was headed by Alex Kroll, who at age 33 was the agency's executive vice president and creative director. The son of a blue-collar steel worker, he had attended Yale and Rutgers on an athletic scholarship. Upon graduation and before starting an agency career, he played professional football for the New York Titans and American Football League. The goals were to reposition and elevate Eastern stature as an airline. In terms of its size and importance, the extent of its route system, and its commitment to the broader travel needs of the public. This would be accomplished with a campaign built on a strong set of beliefs and ideals that the airline would communicate to prospective travelers beyond just providing transportation from point A to point B. The campaign would be an attempt to transcend and eclipse the smaller and pedestrian advertising claims of its competitors. Young and Rubicam's genesis of the campaign was rooted in the Greek mythological story of Icarus attempting to escape from Crete with a set of wings fashioned from feathers and waxed by his father Dedaeus. The connection to the campaign would be in the lines, Come, let us be your wings, Eastern, the wings of man. Television commercials would show Eastern jets climbing through billowing white cloud formations and brilliant sunsets. Distant and exotic destinations would be featured not just in the U.S., but Mexico, Canada, and the Caribbean. Symphonic musical scores would accompany the visuals. The voiceover narrative would be done by Orson Welles with his deep, eloquent, and godlike voice. Welles would also record radio commercials where his poetic dialogue would paint dreamlike mind pictures for listeners. The young and most talented copywriters of the agency all wanted to work on the campaign for the satisfaction they would get 
in knowing that Orson Welles would record what they had written. And the fact that Wells would be their voice raised the standards of excellence for the advertising. That is, it had better be a great script if Mr. Wells is going to record it. The new campaign was not an easy one to secure top management approval. An agency presentation had to be made to Floyd Hall. Even though more than 40 years have passed, I can vividly recall it. The presentation was made by Alex Kroll. After his introductory comments, the conference room went dark, and the first commercials were shown to Hall and the assembled group from the airline management. Lights went up, and all eyes in turn to Mr. Hall for his reactions. Alex, he said, I appreciate your hard work on this campaign, but I have a serious problem with it. My problem is that, in the context of airline advertising, I've never seen anything quite like this before. Kroll paused and then politely responded, Thank you, Mr. Hall. What you've said is very insightful. It is exactly the reason this campaign is going to be effective. It is going to break through the monotony and sameness of the airline advertising that you have seen before. What Hall didn't realize was that in a few words he had given all of us in the room the reason why the campaign would succeed. The meeting ended with a polite approval nod by Mr. Hall, who then expressed the hope that Alex's comment would prove to be correct. In other internal screenings, there were also concerns, particularly among field managers. Many saw the campaign as lofty, pompous, and unrelated to the everyday need of filling airline seats in their local markets. Recognizing these needs, a portion of local advertising schedules would use local radio and newspaper ads tailored to individual market situations. Radio commercials, for example, would all have local live announcer tags with copy based on field manager input. The new campaign theme also found its way into other communication channels of the airline. Starting in 1972 and 15 years thereafter, Eastern had a major exhibit at Walt Disney World as part of its role as the destination's official airline. It was titled If You Had Wings and featured a simulated airline flight to Eastern's more exotic vacation destinations. The ride ended with an Orson Welles voiceover telling visitors, you do have wings. You can do all these things. You can widen your world, Eastern, the wings of man. This exhibit drew millions of Disney World visitors each year, extending the exposure and reach of the wings of man message. The campaign ran late into the 1970s, and tracking research showed a steady rise in airline preference rating. The wings of man campaign had been bold, brazen, and controversial, but it worked. For those involved in the development and management of the campaign, there was a lesson here for all of us, that tough problems require boldness and risk-taking, and that in the face of controversy, tenacity is necessary if one is committed to getting the job done. And that is the story of the Wings of Man. This was written by Jim Camisa. Jim joined Eastern Airlines during 1966 and was director of advertising between 1969 and 1972. During that time, he worked with Rum Young and Rubicon to help promote the brand and the Wings of Man campaign. He also put together the package that won EAL, the official airline designation of the Walt Disney World. For Harry Lindquist and myself, I'd like to thank you for tuning us in today. We hope you'll come back and listen to more stories and memories of the world's greatest airline. Stories of its people and planes as told by the Eastern family. If you missed the 8 p.m. scheduled radio show, don't worry, as it will be in the archive on the Internet about 15 minutes after broadcast. You can go to www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, the same way that you tuned us in to listen to tonight's episode one. The episodes are listed by numbers with the highest number, the latest to be broadcast. If you have a story about Eastern Airlines that you'd like to share with others, why not send it to us? Our email is eneilholland at yahoo.com. That's E-N-E-A-L, Holland, H-O-L-L-A-N-D, 
at yahoo.com. We're recorded and give you the credit on the air. Now, until next week, we'll sign off with this familiar theme music of our great airline, Eastern. Good night to the Eastern family. See you next week.